Howdy, y'all. You're listening to The Managing Up Show, a podcast about leading and managing in the world of technology. I'm your host, Travis Weisgood, and with me this week are Nick Means and Brandon Hayes. Hey, everybody. Hello. This week, we wanted to talk about shipping software and what role managers play in all of that. And I have lots of questions about this from my own career and things that I've experienced that I've had specific challenges with and questions that some things I figured out, a lot of things I haven't. But basically, where the boundaries are for managers and what the role and responsibility a manager has with the software that ships or doesn't ship. And so I wanted to find out, Nick and Travis, from from you two, what is your experience with the responsibility a manager has in making sure that the software actually ships? I think one of the reasons that's such an interesting question is that a lot of the answer to it depends upon what type of organization it is that you're working in. If you're in a small organization where you are the engineering manager and the project manager and the product manager, it's all yours. If it doesn't ship, it's on you. If it ships, it's on you. If the wrong thing ships, it's on you. You get into larger organizations and that responsibility starts diffusing across a range of people with different titles and it gets more interesting to manage at that point because then it's largely a negotiation between all of the people wearing all of those hats. And it depends on where that negotiation ends up in your organization, what you as an engineering manager are directly responsible for. Yeah, that's been my experience too. Working at companies with 200 engineers down to companies with five, depending on the size and scale you're operating at is really the main thing that that leads into it. You can have some teams where the engineering manager is essentially operating as the head of engineering and everything falls to them. And you can have some teams where you have an engineering manager that has three reports on their team and they're a player coach. They're responsible for their small portion of it, but they're largely working with a lot of other folks in the room as well. So one common thread though, that I've seen at managing at companies of different sizes and in different roles is that there is what I call rule number one. Rule number one is the software must flow. That's the ultimate metric that executives use for whether things are working or broken. Is your engineering team functioning or is it broken? Is the team that you're managing functioning or broken? And there are lots of health indicators, maybe if you have a sophisticated instrumentation system for the health of a team, because there is there are way better metrics, leading indicators and not trailing indicators. But ultimately, the trailing indicator of whether a team is functioning or not is is the software coming out. And sometimes those are very trailing indicators because you can like, you know, you can make the software ship really fast at first and then not be able to ship a year from now. And so, you know, the, those indicators aren't great. They're not ideal. I've just seen that used most of the time by most organizations I've worked with. So my question is like, okay, well, if that's the case, then how much of that falls on the shoulders of the manager? I think one big part of that equation that falls on the manager is telling the story about the software that is shipping. I've seen this play out a lot where you have two managers working on two different teams and one of them's really good about uh, singing the praises of the team and trumpeting all the successes, big, or, big and small. And another one who's just heads down doing their job and talking about the big wins, but not necessarily calling out everything that they made just a little bit better. And when you compare those two up to the C-suite to, to what you said earlier with the rule being that software must ship, well, if you've got one team that's saying they're doing a lot and another one that's only doing a little bit, even if it is really big, it has to be huge if you're talking dozens of features a sprint versus one or one and a half. And that's just a perception thing. And I think that's a, a role that an engineering manager can definitely play in this is making sure that the full value of the software that is being shipped is being communicated to the rest of the company and the rest of the organization. 
mean, one of the one of the phrases I've used often in my career is that shipping covers a multitude of sins. And that usually comes up in conversation for me when I'm trying to help a team balance their backlog and figure out how to work technical debt or how to work engineering investments that they want into the feature work that the team is expected to deliver. And some of that is on your plate as an engineering manager to make sure that you are building in enough time in the backlog to allow those things to happen. But the other thing is, if you can ship software, if you can help the company directly achieve its goals and not have to play the stop the line card to do architectural work, it's a lot easier to get those things done. So how would you handle that in a situation or an organization where the engineering team doesn't own their own backlog? Because I've, I've been in organizations where that's a pretty common thing, where it's a, a product manager or program manager. They're the ones who own that backlog. They're the ones prioritizing things. To a T, they always say, hey, we're really open to technical conversations until it actually is crunch time. And then, well, these are the features we've got to get out to customers. So how do you manage that in that situation? There's a metaphor I often reach for there as well. And it's something I learned from a former colleague of mine, Scott Baldwin. One of the things that he would constantly say was that you don't run your servers at 100% utilization because it's a sign that your servers are overloaded. Why would you do that with your engineering team? And I think that's where that conversation starts is teaching whoever owns the backlog that it's actually not healthy for the team to be long-term executing at 100% because you can't pay down technical debt. And if you're executing at 100%, you're taking on technical debt. That definitely reflects my experience. I think that is a thing that every manager eventually learns. Anybody who has to look at the dynamics of a team, 100% utilization on a team. I've run a consultancy this way, and I ran us at 100% utilization, and it was financially really awesome until turnover started happening. And you're like, why is, why is everybody saying this is the most intense work experience they've ever had? And then in running teams, the same thing where, okay, we'll come back to this. We'll come back to this. We'll come back to this. And and it's one of those things where people say, we only hire when we feel a desperate need. Boy, that's just, that's not great strategy, it turns out, because uh, it means that you're, you're running at 100% utilization all the time. And those same people now have no time to onboard your new people. So you think about the amount of time that actually gets spent delivering software uh, and the amount of time making sure that software can be delivered, th the reality of that, if you're actually looking at how people really spend their time on healthy teams, is like 60-40 maybe. And I could actually take either one in terms of which one is 60 and which one's 40. If, you're, if your team is spending 85-90% of their time with fingers on a keyboard trying to make the features come out, you should really examine that because you're basically like your car is like headed to a bridge out sign right now. And one of the things that will often happen when a team does that is the engineering team will find the way to get the other component that they're missing. If they're spending 85% of their time building software, they'll add on the 40% that they're not getting and, yep. and they'll end up way overutilized. Yeah. They're going to do it in the margins. They're going to do it at home. They're going to work after hours. You're going to wonder why you're burning all your people out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a very quick shortcut if you want poor quality software to run your team 60 or 70 hours a week where they don't have time to rest and recover and have the mental capacity that it takes to solve hard problems and write good code to do it. The mistake that I've made often here is I'm I'm a bleeding heart, compassionate manager. I want everybody to like me, and I really care a lot about work-life balance, and so I want to see people leaving work early and stuff, but I also want you to hit your commitments. And by not 
ensuring that there's the appropriate amount of overhead within those commitments for the sort of taxes that you have to pay in order to deliver stuff, people will secretly, they'll see that it's frowned upon to even talk about those taxes. And they'll just absorb that secretly and stress themselves out and make themselves sick doing that. It's what I would do if I were a developer on that team. And it's sort of a natural human reaction. I think this is a huge management pitfall that most let managers at an entry level, mid-level even, fall into over and over again until they realize, oh my gosh, there's all this invisible work that's happening to try to meet the commitments that I'm encouraging them to make and keep. So this goes back to something I've said before. I think I've even said it before on this podcast. One of my biggest problems with with the scrum industrial complex is the idea of a sprint. As a runner, you don't sprint all the time. That's something you use very strategically in a very targeted way to get faster. It does help with that. But we've chosen to model the the core unit of time that just about every team measures themselves by uh, as something that's just not healthy to do all the time. Yes, there are times when you are sprinting for a finish line. Uh, There are going to be those crazy deadlines where it's 60, 80, 80 plus hour weeks. Those do happen, but that's not the norm. And if those are the norm, you've got something else going on. You need to figure out. This is a, a term I wish we could figure out how to change and turn into something a little bit more accurate because like words have meanings. We all know what we, what we mean when we say a sprint, uh, when we're talking about it and what a healthy sprint looks like. But if you take that word to somebody that doesn't know it and just knows it as that's how they do work, it's like, okay, everything that they bring to the table with that word is what they're expecting. So they expect to see that utilization. That's like, okay, you should, you should slide across the finish line and be gasping and out of breath. And guess what? We're starting again in two hours. Ron Jeffries actually tweeted about exactly this earlier today, and it's so darn good. I'm just going to read it verbatim. He says that sprints or iterations are intended to be an enabling constraint, helping the team learn how to make work items small enough to fit a bunch into the iteration and learn to judge how many they can likely do. Pressure to do more or to be correct makes them not serve as enabling. And that's really on point with exactly what you just said, Travis. It's, it's meant to be a way to frame your thinking not a way to flog an engineering team to do more. Yeah. I mean, this harkens back to the conversations we've had before around estimation. And the second those escape into the wild, that becomes the, well, this other team over here was doing 50 points. Why did you only manage 35? Or even the one that I've seen much more commonly is, hey, you did 40 points last sprint and you did 40 points the one before and you did 40 points the one before that. Why don't we try for 45 this one? (laughs) Let's really stretch. Let's stretch ourselves. And it's like, that's not what that's for. That's like that's like saying, "Hey, Brandon, you're 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 five nine on a good day. Why don't you just try to be five ten? Just really <laughs> just work at it." I mean, the appropriate question there is, why did we ship forty five points this week? Did we cut corners to get there? Because mm-hmm. if you've been if you've been, if you're doing estimation right and you've done it, you're hitting a point total consistently in the same neighborhood, and you start seeing big swings either direction. That's the responsible question to ask: is why did it change? That's really Wait, yeah. where it's useful. Hang on just a second. I thought you were a no estimates guy. I am a no estimates guy, but I have <laughs> I have strong opinions about how they should be used if you're going to do them. Yeah. If you're going to use them, don't club people over the head with them. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I did help set up a, a dashboard for the rest of the company to understand velocity. And that was one of the very first things I did with it. I took all the teams and normalized them. So everything was 100%. And we were showing deviation of velocity off of 100%. Like, were you, did you ship more than you thought you would, less than you thought you would? Are you, move, are you trending up or down based on the baseline that you've had? And it would constantly normalize itself and should always be pulling back to 100%. And that was because 
the reasoning I gave to the, everyone else was I want to show if we're moving more than 10 points up or 10 points down, something's gone wrong. Like we're getting into to dangerous territory. And if we're 20 points, either direction, something is way off. Like something has gone entirely off the rails. So I wanted to be able to call those out and call out going under or over in either direction. Because uh, to your point, it's a good warning indicator, but not the whole story. You got to understand what was going on to get you there. Absolutely. So coming back to something you said earlier, Nick, we were talking about like, well, you show up maybe at a team and they're not currently meeting expectations around this stuff. Because I do think people view a manager as a part of your responsibility is to make sure that there's some sort of connection, that people are hooked up to the delivery of business value in some way. Facilitating that connection is a core tenet of what it is to be a manager. It means you understand the business value, you know how to communicate it back and forth, you know how to communicate and represent the interests of the team in relationship to that business value, like they do or don't have the tools they need, the code base isn't in the right kind of shape or whatever. There is a bootstrapping function that occur that has to occur with a, either a brand new team or a team that hasn't been performing. And this is a tricky situation to find yourself in. When you have a team that's perceived as underperforming or it's a brand new team that hasn't proven itself and you have this sort of thing, there's going to be a lot of pressure to just please a stakeholder and say, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, we can do that. You know, Just give it to us and we'll figure it out. And then you wind up creating this sort almost self-reinforcing cycle of disappointing stakeholders because you're committing to stuff that you can't possibly keep. And then there's the flip side where you might say, we can't do, you know, we're not going to do anything other than, you know, clean up our bedroom for three months and, you know, get at us with requirements then. And there's a, there's a tricky bootstrapping function here in between those two that is difficult to get at. And I don't know if you two have ever experienced that. I mean, I think you get to play that card once. Like if you come into a team and you can really spend time understanding the things that are proving to be sandbags around the ankles of your engineers, keeping them from hitting their stride, being able to ship software at, at the velocity that everybody would like, I think you can stand up one time in your tenure as a manager of a given organization and say, we really have to slow down to speed up here. But boy, you better get it right because you're not going to get to do it again. That's a really good point. That definitely reflects my experience as well. Yeah. So I've gone through similar processes to this with teams through rewards and things like that. And one of the tools that I've used is to just reset back to a metric that everyone in on and off the team thinks is about half of where they should be and say, okay, we're going to have the backlog ready to do all the work that we think we should be doing. And the sprint is going to be lined up and ready to go, but we're only going to commit to half of it. And we're going to get that across the line first and then start pulling stuff in. And that tends to work really well as a way to, to set up those successes on the team. Because invariably what I've found is when a team is not chipping, if it's under the team's control, it's because they don't feel like they've had any wins or the win, they're not getting the wins that they want. So if you can really set up some some wins and start lining those up as part of the process so that it's not just something that's beating the team down. I think that can go a long way to getting the flywheel going so that you are getting up to, to full speed. So I'm going to use a really rough metaphor here. It's not a metaphor I endorse. So you guys can correct me on this one, but it's the metaphor of like the length of leash with stuff. And I think that it's it's a broken metaphor in that like the leash is a is a myth in the first place. Like as a manager, your job is not to hold or let out a leash. But let's, you know, assume for the sake of argument for a moment that's a thing. I have seen people attempt to control 
by holding a really short leash on engineering teams and saying, I'm going to watch everything you do. I'm going to sign everything directly. We're going to make and keep exact, precise commitments. And if you don't, the consequences are going to be you lose trust. You're not going to be rewarded. You know that this is we're going to set those expectations for you. And I've seen really long leashes that are like, we don't care what you ship. Just, you know, fulfill your dreams as an engineering team. And uh, (laughs) we believe you're going to come up with really good stuff. And I've actually seen those two things kind of bounce off each other in some organizations Mm -hmm. where the leash gets really long and then they pull it really tight and then there's a reaction and then it's really long again for some reason. And there's some amount of slack that I've found to be super appropriate. And again, the leash metaphor is not great because my goal isn't control. My goal is framing things and helping people understand where the boundaries are that, Hey, there's a minimum expectation that we move forward business objectives. And these are the reasons behind those business objectives. If you spend more time than this on this one business objective, it no longer makes sense. If you spend less than that, it's profitable to the business and you're probably in good shape. And so when I say leash, I'm talking about like slack in the line to let people understand kind of roughly where some boundaries are in terms of what can be accomplished, how much time and effort it's worth. And then breaking that up into approximately two week chunks, I found, you know, call it a sprint, don't call it a sprint. I found a cadence to be the most important aspect of that to say, Hey, you know, we're going to talk about this in two week chunks. And that's how I've found the ability to bootstrap these relationships sometimes by saying, Hey, we're not going to commit to all this crazy stuff. There's all these things that you want to do. And I know you think that we're at, you know, you want us at a hundred and we're at 10 or zero in your opinion, we're going to do 20 and that's more than you're getting now. So you can't complain if you get it. And they're like, they're just, just getting the wheels unstuck at all and getting the team to kind of let themselves understand how much slack they need in the line, how much time they need to pay down technical debt as a part of, of this stuff, how much of that tax is communication overhead because they have dependencies on other teams, uh, how much slack they need in the line for mentoring and supporting each other and cross communicating. So people don't just race to their silos and try to grind on code and then wind up less efficient as a result, like help and guide and let the team kind of figure that stuff out themselves. And, you know, when you said if people are utilized at 100%, that doesn't work. If they're utilized at 50, 60%, I've seen that work better. I think one of the challenges is making sure the team understands where in the spectrum of the life cycle of an engineering organization they are. So, you know, if you're in a startup and you've got a month of runway left and you have to get three critical features out the door in order to get more funding, well, then you're in total JSIO mode. Just get it out, get the features done, whatever it takes to ship it, you'll pay down the debt later. Versus being in a mature company where you're dealing with financial transactions and you need to build nearly perfect, nearly 100% reliable software to meet the business need. Versus being in the overfunded organization where the company has more money than it really knows how to spend responsibly and doesn't know how to set good product goals. So gold plating at that point is appropriate. Well, it, it's not. That's the thing. One of That's actually one of the most challenging environments to manage in because you as an mm-hmm. engineering manager have to build a sense of urgency for the team in order for them to deliver software and, and feel productive and feel like they're making a difference and delivering business value, even if the business isn't really asking that of you because they don't feel much urgency about things. Yeah, I've lost engineers after their third sprint of a four or five day research task to talk about whether, and the whole output of that research task was, can we, and should we do this thing? And it was going to be the next sprint before they actually evaluated it and determined. 
Like not having, yes, there are going to be some engineers that want to work in fire mode all the time and everything is the most urgent thing possible. And there are going to be some engineers that want to be able to spend six months and get the, get it exactly right for whatever their value of right is. But the vast majority of developers that I've worked with, this may just be a virtue of the the size companies that I, I gravitate towards. The vast majority wants somewhere in the middle of those two things. They want to know the impact that they're having. Most of the, the engineers I've worked with have gotten into this because it's a creative, a creative endeavor. So they want to have some creative validation. They want to see their work get out in the wild and be used and, and make people's lives better in whatever small way that happens to be. So if they're always just researching and looking at that six to 18 month time horizon for when their feature might see the light of day, they're going to get bored or discouraged because they never ship anything, which is the other end of that spectrum where every week you've got to ship two new features that are customer facing. And that's what your team of three is expected to do. I've seen both of those play out and neither of them are good. Uh, To your point about the too too lax a leash or too tight a leash being a bad thing. I the the metaphor that came to mind immediately for me was a continuum, a circle, and you back in. If you go too far one direction, you're backing into the other, and it's the same problem and 180 degrees from where you want to be. I've been in all of those sizes and types of companies, most of them as a manager by now, and I can say both as a manager and a contributor, I definitely understand where there's not enough organizational back pressure to clearly assert value where you have to manufacture the the urgency and and which means that basically you're having to justify the value of the work yourself you are going to have a bad time because you are going to have to sell the business on why the work that is being done actually matters and not just get it put up on a shelf which is like like you were saying Travis that's turnover city right there uh if you if you keep taking people's work and then you put it up on a shelf and you say you know what that code base is real shiny congratulations we're going to you know put a gold star on this repo we're going to put it right up here on the refrigerator we're so proud of you <laughs> and all right next we're going to do the next one of these and they're like oh who uses it so you have to be able to close the loop on here is usage here is the business impact that software is actually making and if you have to figure out how to do that post facto because the, there wasn't any upfront business value being addressed by the software and you have to go sell it into the rest of the organization, your job as an engineering manager is infinitely more difficult and complex than just facilitating. Gosh, I, thank you for reminding me, Nick, that there are jobs in engineering management that are harder than the ones that I've been doing. <laughs> I mean, I think it all comes down to constraints, right? Because if you have an absolute total lack of constraints, you're going to make dumb product decisions and ship crap that the world doesn't need. Now, you can get to the opposite end where the constraints get really sharp and pointy and nobody's having a good time and everybody's stressed to the max trying to get software out the door. But that happy middle where there's enough constraint that you can clearly see business value being delivered, that you can make good decisions about building products that customers actually want and will pay money for, that's where engineering teams really thrive. So... I can say that the the one that is my least favorite is the overfunded startup because you see it ping pong back and forth between the two, depending on how <laughs> your proximity to a board yep. meeting. Been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's so great. I love to see the work that you all are doing. This, you know, this is really interesting, you know, research and development. Hey, listen, in 45 minutes, we need a functioning version of this, though, to show the board. So are we good? It's almost like you've said that yourself. You you have that down really good. 
I think, yeah, we've, I think there's a through line here for anybody that's worked in that size and stage of company. I think probably the majority of people managing people though are in that middle part, trying to figure out what their role is. And I think, you know, literally a lot of managers don't know. And I think this is actually probably something to find out at interview time. And so it's probably too late at your current job. It's not too late to find out, but it's too late to evaluate the company for this. But I can say this is a thing you should be asking at interview time. What is the responsibility of the manager? Like, what what is my accountability? How is that tied to output? Is it tied to business objectives? Are they are they OKRs? Are they KPIs? Is it just whether or not the software ships, or is it whether the software is delivering some kind of business value, or is it just on the individual success of the people on the team? Different companies want to address that because they may be at different stages. Like, if I were a manager in a company that's so big that the whole you know, the whole organization doesn't know how to tell an individual engineer the business impact of the software that they're working on because you, you know, added a validation to, you know, something on a credit card form that maybe tens of millions of people touch. And so it's okay that it takes you six months to button up this validation on, you know, one form properly. You know, that's a tough position to be in, but it's real. I've seen that for people that work at companies where, you know, that's the scale you're working at and that's the speed you work at. At that point, I would say I would be much more interested in my responsibility being whether that engineer is successful and happy and not necessarily tied to some global engineering team output of some kind. One of my one of my favorite questions to ask to kind of get at that is tell me the story of how something goes from idea to ship to customers in your company. Who comes up with the ideas? How do they get in the backlog? Who has the right to prioritize them? When does the engineering team get to work on them? When does the engineering team first see them? Tell me the whole story. And you can find out a lot about how a company thinks about who gets to come up with the ideas, who has that right, who gets to prioritize work. Those are the critical questions to ask to understand if it's the kind of organization you would enjoy managing in or not. Yeah, and the flip side of that is, how does the engineering team know whether the software they shipped yep. met its goals or not. Especially if you like sort of lean startup type stuff and you want to be able to experiment and ship small and see that business impact and prove it out. That's a thing that so few organizations are good at. Surprisingly to me, I learned a lot about management from reading the book Accelerate by Nicole Forsgren, PhD, and some some other people that are kind of luminaries in the DevOps community. I was surprised at how much management advice and pertinent management stuff was in that, in that same vein of being able to ask the right questions about software around how often does it get delivered? What are the barriers in between an idea and knowing whether the idea was successful, including delivery, including building, including being able to understand basic stuff like quality, being able to build in quality and being able to build in metrics for whether this thing accomplished some kind of business goal or or not. And And at that point, you're very empowered because If you have the ability to do this really hardcore DevOps stuff of understanding the business value of what you're doing in a continuous environment, that's such a different conversation than, gosh, how am I going to be held accountable as a manager for the delivery of software? Like, well, I'm not held accountable for their collective output. I'm just making sure that there's nothing in the way of this team achieving the kind of output that they naturally could. I think DevOps is an underrated component of that right now that basically removing all the the friction and barriers in between conceptually i think devops is really more on the latter half right and it's uh you have the conceptualization stuff but everything in the middle about quality measurement actual delivery uh, there's so much in the devops movement that actually i think would be 
pertinent for managers to deeply understand. At that point, once you understand put in place practices to let a team deliver stuff for themselves, at that point, you're just focusing on making sure that they're pointed in the right direction. Now you're, you are a storyteller. You're talking about why and making those connections for the team and letting them handle a lot of the rest. It's very, it's very cool and very empowering. And then the team understands why. They have very few barriers in between them and getting that same software out the door. They have very few, very low latency in understanding what the impact of that stuff had and enables them to be really quick in responding to, to things saying that experiment didn't go the way we wanted. Maybe we try something else or maybe we walk away from it instead of that being like a six month thing we learned. And everybody goes, ah, crap. Yeah, that's been a pretty common thing for the teams that I've run. Some of the most efficient ones are the ones where the person functioning in product, whether that was me standing in as a product manager or another product manager, was telling the story of what it is we're trying to achieve and then walking away and letting the team figure out how to do that. You give the team the autonomy and the tools to to be able to figure out how to to do their work and do it the best way possible. That's the, those are the right kind of boundaries to be setting around the team or to, to continue the metaphor of the proper amount of leash. But to a T it, it's one of those things, especially for a product or a project manager, especially, or maybe a product manager who's come from, from the project management background. It's really disconcerting to say, wait, you mean I'm not going to line up every one of these tickets and assign them to developers? Like we're not going to go into the sprint like that. We're going to go into sprint planning with an hour and a half meeting and no tickets written? What do you mean? But to a T, every time I've seen that be the way the team is run, they run super, super efficiently. Well, part of that is, I feel like I say this all the time, but we're really bad as software organizations about going out and spending lots of money hiring really smart people and then expecting them to deliver widgets. And what you really want when you go out and hire really smart people, you want to hire people that can make smart decisions about how to build software, how to make good choices, how to find the right corners to cut to prove something without building it to a level of permanence that's way more expensive than it's than it's worth. And when you walk into a sprint with every card already prioritized in the backlog and you're just walking through those cards and talking about them, you don't get that. You get people to turn their brains off. And it's interesting because you can accidentally steer into that and just like run it right off a cliff because it's very tempting when your team is saying, I need clearer requirements. I need better broken down cards. I need clearer this. I need clearer that. That should be a signal to tell you, oh, this is he already headed in the wrong direction. This is headed in a direction that is, you know, disempowering. But your team will tell you they want stuff and the things that they're asking you for are bad for them. And it's not even fun. They're asking like, hey, we want to eat more dirt, please. And you're like, mm, I don't I don't want to feed you guys dirt. <laughs> They're like, nope, more dirt, please. Like, I'm telling you, if you if you try this other thing, it's really good. They're breakfast tacos. And that is a easy trap to fall into. I've definitely fallen into it myself where I then I go fight to break the cards down better and try to just show up and have pre-digested things that are ready to go. And that just kind of continues this downward spiral of having teams feel like they don't have any say over their work. One way that I found to, to help combat that a little bit is to like walk through the logical conclusion of breaking down tickets and having, here's your full spec document, all the things we need to do, like just go down and check off every one of these bullet points and you're set. By the time you get to that point, there's no creativity left. And that's where it starts to look really appealing to the MBA minded individuals in the company to just outsource. 
Hey, we just need people to check off boxes. They're not doing anything creative here. Why are we paying this onshore team a tremendous amount of money for their creativity and expertise and then feeding them? Here's the thing I need you to go build. Yeah. And it's a lot of that has to do with team design. Because if you're going to have a mastermind type person breaking all this stuff down, then you don't need people of that level of creativity, expertise, uh, experience, whatever. You can just, you know, have the mastermind do all the, the digestion work and then hand it to people that can just check all the boxes. But if you're so, so, and it kind of depends on the design of the team. If you have a team that skews, you know, let's mm-hmm. say it's not outsourcing. Let's say it's just, you have a, a team whose average experience level is very low. If you have a team and you're like, look, all we could hire are all these people that are right out of college, right out of boot camps, and three-fourths of our staff are people that need somebody to tell them how to do this, not just what to do uh, or even why. Like, I think it would be unfair to ask a junior engineer to process all of that and then turn product out. Mm-hmm. But if you're designing your teams well, you have a variety of experience levels on the team where you can have senior people handling Hey, I'm going to translate the why into some of the what. Have mid-level people translating the what into some of the how, and have you know less experienced engineers uh, take the how and be like, "Well, that's plenty of challenge for me. Thank you very much." Like, I'll go research the documentation on these known APIs and build that stuff. And I've seen that work really well on teams if you design them right. Yeah, I've seen a a lot of teams who end up in a situation with either a kingdom or a democracy, and either you have the one person who is here, go do these things, and they're running the ship, or it's the democracy, and everybody has a voice, and everybody's kind of figuring out which way to go, and that tends to to equate to how senior the staff is on the team, and to go too far in either direction, there are benefits and trade-offs in both places. With the, hey, I'm just going to sit up on high and dictate what we're doing, you get exactly what you want. Probably not exactly what you needed, um, but it's exactly what you wanted built. And if you go too far to the democracy side, you can just point it in a general direction and hope it comes out the other end, sort of looking kind of like what you thought you wanted. So one of the last things I want to talk about, and we brought this up briefly before, is all of these things sound really nice, but when the crap really hits the fan, this starts getting interesting where you turn the heat up on this stuff. You have these deadlines as a manager it feels like a lot of your job is to preserve the balance between, hey, we have the needs of individual human beings who are trying to to turn this stuff out. And we have the, I'm also here to represent the needs of the organization who doesn't get to be a business anymore if we don't do this. And trying to mediate those things and, and achieve some sort of balance there. But there will come these crunch times. There will come these pressing deadlines. How do you, in the crunch time, is there a way to prevent the rubber banding effect? Or is there a way to not have that be perpetual? Or is it afterwards that you find a way to kind of take a breath? I'm curious to know your experiences with how you kind of return to balance, knowing that it's cyclical, that sometimes there are going to be points where things kind of crunch down. I mean, I think this is one of the few places where the sprint metaphor is actually really good. Because what does a runner do after they sprint? They rest. They take the time, they walk the track. They don't stop because stopping is not particularly good either. They take the time to walk the track, catch their breath, stretch their muscles out. And I think an engineering team needs to do the same thing. If they've been delivering towards a crunch, your job as engineering manager is to make sure that everybody in the organization knows that that's what's happening and knows that your expectation is that the team has some time to breathe and catch their breath once that sprint's done, once they've delivered what they've committed to. And where the walking comes in is you can't just walk away after you drop a big feature. People have to be around to support it. There's going to be things that go wrong. But 
that gives you the opportunity to give the team a breather while they're still there to support that kind of thing. That definitely is something that I've experienced and something I've kind of become notorious for harping on is telling people there's a difference between shipping a fix to something that should have very little echo or reverberations if the fix is correct and adopting a puppy. If you're shipping a new piece of software, you've just adopted a puppy and there's going to be an initial wave of requests that come in off of that bug fixes, additional features. Hey, this didn't work the way that we thought it needed to in practice, um, you know, just encountering real life and ongoing maintenance of that thing forever. You now have adopted a puppy into your home. And initially, puppies are a lot more work than they are as they get older, but this is now a thing that's a part of our life. And so be really circumspect about what you choose to adopt into your home because you don't want to just, I think product teams will have you adopt puppies until you're like, we have now, (laughs) there are 101 Dalmatians in this home. This is, and the reality of 101 Dalmatians is 101 Dalmatians worth of Dalmatian poop. So let's not, you know, indulge the fantasy that that's like some awesome thing. So Nick, I think that's a really good point. And it's probably as good as any to end this on. There's a lot more to say on this topic, but I think that can wait for another time. I really enjoyed talking to you all about this and I've definitely picked up some more ideas for the next time I run into these sort of situations where expectations might be unclear or you hit these crunch modes. I especially love the idea of creating a walk period after your sprint. I'm definitely going to steal that and use it the next time I find myself in a little bit of a crunch. For everybody else listening, I hope you got something out of it as well. We want to thank you for joining us for this episode. I'm Brandon Hayes. You can find me at Viking on Twitter. That's T-E-H Viking. I'm Nick Means. You can find me at nmeans on Twitter. And I'm Travis Weisgood, and I am at T. Weisgood just about everywhere. If you like the show, the best way to help is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And as always, if you have any questions or thoughts or suggestions for topics, you can tweet at us at Managing Up Show. Thanks again for joining us. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon.